1: Hello and welcome to The podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. And a warm welcome to season 10, where we explore histories and mysteries of the British landscape. We'll be walking in ancient lands, unearthing forgotten myths and even stumbling across a few chilling tales of the supernatural. And as ever, we'll be enjoying encounters with wonderful wildlife all along the way. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of The podcast. And welcome to episode six, where we meet poet Hugh Dunkley in the magical landscape of the South Downs in West Sussex. Hugh takes us on a wander into Kingley Vale Nature Reserve and under the canopy of the twisted, eerie yew trees that thrive there. He's on a quest to find a World War II resistance bunker hidden in the woods. But along the way, Hugh unearths a host of curious historical tales among the burial mounds, tumuli and glorious wildflower meadows of the Downland. And we get to enjoy some wonderful poetry on the way, as well as words of wisdom from Steve Walker of Natural England, who manages this landscape. And later, join me and the podcast team to discuss the podcast postback and listener sounds of the week. But for now, join Hugh Dunkley out on the downs.
2: Up ahead of me, I can see Kingley Vale, which is part of the South Downs, of course, and a rim of darker trees, yew trees, on the top of the hill for which the reserve is famous. Kingly Vale was formed originally at the end of the last ice age as meltwaters from glaciers further north swept down, sweeping sediments into the valley bottom but leaving the tops bare and these bare tops were then colonized by trees and grasses So I'm going to be walking up to the top of the reserve today looking at the burial mounds on the top, there's an old hill fort up there as well, been many years of, thousands of years of human activity in the Vale, but I'm also interested in trying to find an old Second World War resistance bunker which I've been told is somewhere in the trees on the northwest side of the reserve. And I'm just coming up to the reserve now. And there's an amazing U sculpture here right in front of me with a star shaped carved into it. And beyond that, the Nature Studies Centre for the reserve. So I'm going to be going to the Nature study Centre and then talking to Steve Walker, the warden, about the, the management of the reserve. When I first lived in Chichester, this little study centre was full of stuffed animals that uh, Richard Williamson and then a uh, warden had found around the reserve or on roads. I found it all quite macabre and I wrote a poem about it and this is called Natural History. These are the casualties, the ones who never made it to the tangled safety of the other verge, their lives seeping away in ditches or who, racked with toxins, lay under bushes, uncomprehending as a million suns burn through their bodies. Now they're pinned and labelled, a catalogue of flattened rats, voles and squirrels frozen in assorted agonies. The roe fawn, like a mummified foetus, its two long legs twisted at impossible angles. An emaciated husk was once a green woodpecker that must have died of starvation, its balding plumage almost colourless. A pinboard is lined with skulls, pebble-sized finches and sparrows, the curlew's long beak a huge needle four times as long as its head and below the skulls something I can't make out a thin dried up tube of flesh ending in two big fingered paws and a ruff of fur a faded card is lying beside it mole I can still read July 69 I lift the tube onto my hand it weighs almost nothing the long claws are like fish bones Whatever ate it turned the skin inside out like a glove, stripping away everything except this stubborn spine and these feet with their wrinkled human palms. So I'm glad to say, from my point of view anyway, the uh, study center is different now. It's actually locked today, and apparently the lock is broken, but inside is a display about the history uh, human history and the natural history of Kingley Vale. So I'm walking along the track and we're now in the reserve uh, with Steve and we're walking under oak trees and there's some yew trees around here as well. A, a big old yew to our right. Um, I noticed an ash dieback notice there Steve.
3: Yeah so sadly we've we've got ash dieback like the rest of the southeast and one of the few species that grows really well with the yew is the ash, so we've got an awful lot of ash at Kingley Vale and a lot of the trees are, are declining, so they lose their, their leaves at first, the tips go a bit orangey-brown and then they start dropping limbs, so we're trying to leave as many of the ash as we can, but any ones around paths so we have to go in and decide whether we want to take the tree out or ideally pollard it so we kind of leave. You see these trees almost like tortured hands sticking up, but they're actually it's quite good management because you leave a lot of deadwood standing deadwood, which is yeah. great for bats, mm. birds, invertebrates, um, so yeah, trying to get that balance right, but it will be a big change for the nature reserve. Um, if you come down in winter and you look from the top, all you see is you know the ash and the yew, but with the ash going, it, it will open up opportunities for new things we're starting to get a lot more woodland glades, uh, getting, getting a lot more light into the canopy, which is great for not just the ewe to regenerate, but a lot of other species, lots of the woodland butterflies and birds that appreciate the sort of sunlit uh, woodland glades.
2: So what, what are the other main species you've got? I notice a lot of oak down here in the, in the, the bottom of the valley.
3: Yeah, so, so Kingley Vale is a large glacial comb and in, in the valley bottom the soils are very different. There's a sort of thicker soil. We do have a lot more oak, trees Um, I mean you'll see all all kinds of things in here but the oaks quite dominant although they're all sort of from 1950s so quite old but not really old lots of uh, hawthorn other thorns holly some white beam Um, you get occasional interesting tree like a wild service tree Uh, but it's something we'd love to see more of more sort of diversity of species but being a a National Nature Reserve we don't want to introduce things We we want to give them a chance to appear naturally if possible um, but yeah, where we are in the bottom is much more of a mixed yew woodland. So you've got the broadleafs in amongst the yew, whereas other parts of the reserve you'll, you'll go out and it will just be pure yew. Very different atmosphere there. Um, and that's, you know, in some ways it's a bit more of a shame where we're losing the ash there because there's a few other trees that can live on those really steep, shallow, thin chalk soils um, you find on the edge of the downs.
2: Yeah, because of course a lot of the downs are bare, aren't they, on the top, which... I was saying earlier is part of human activity isn't it from the Bronze Age onwards, or really I suppose people cutting down the trees
3: yeah and if you know if you if you go over to East Sussex and you see the the downs there much more open, you yeah. know really long vistas much more sort of intensively grazed, whereas in west Sussex it's, it's much more wooded, so in some ways it's it's in my opinion anyway it's more special when you get you know an open bit of downland in amongst the woodland um and you get you get a sort of more interesting dynamic of habitats because you've got the grassland in amongst woodland and scrub. And you hear lots of people talking about this sort of habitat mosaic that's ideal for, for most types of wildlife. And, and that's what we've got here really. A really nice mix of grassland glades. And you should get nice a really rich. nice smell here of the margarine when yeah. you uh there's yeah. a lot of margarine wild thyme. Oh yes, I
2: can see see margarine there, yeah. yeah.
3: Um, but generally this is one of our better well, this is possibly our best bit of grassland on the reserve. Um, and you know, when you look down, you can see, you know, all kinds of things flowering. But ones that jump out straight away are, the, well, probably some of the more common ones like the clover and the yarrow. We've got the false um, We've got this is eye bright. It's a lovely little flower. Oh, yeah. We've had a lot of squanancy this year. I think, two, I think those are dark green fritillaries flying around here they're probably going to disappear off onto the woodland edge scene but you can you know it's hard to dis- describe it but the place is teeming with butterflies you know and if we lay down we'd find all kinds of grasshoppers bugs um, we get dragonflies bombing up and down over to the dew pond in the corner so it, yeah the chalk grassland is it really is such a fantastic habitat and but it does require management um you know some of these grasslands could have been here for an awful long time we don't <coughs> quite know how long when you find some, some things like some of the fungi, the wax caps, suggest that, you know, some of these grasslands are ancient. But if we just left it, it would very quickly scrub over. And, you know, that's one of our main, main management actions on the reserve to really sort of try and maintain the chalk grassland we have. Make sure it's in a really nice, nice condition. Um, and try not to let the scrub encroach too much, which is a really difficult balance because you don't want to garden the site. Um, And and scrub (laughs) is fantastic in its own right. We've just Mm. got an awful lot of it. So with our grazing, we're always trying to get that balance right between not grazing too much, leaving some natural processes in action, if you like, some opportunities for dynamism, letting the scrub come out in one area, grazing another area a bit harder... And we won't graze right up to the, to the scrub edge. We like to sort of, we, we use electric fencing because the site's a bit of a nightmare to, to, to graze with, with permanent fencing. Uh, but we'll, we'll set the electric fencing back from the scrub edge so mm-hmm. we get a really nice grade of habitats. You know, we get a nice eco-tone um, with the longer grassland, bits of scrub. And that's where you often find, you know, your reptiles and adders basking out in the sunshine, woodland birds in that sort of denser, dense scrub areas, a lot of the invertebrates as well. Because I think people often forget some of the um some of the insects we have here. You need, you know, their life cycle needs a number of different habitats. You know, they might if you're a bumblebee, you might forage somewhere in the grassland, you might go Mm. somewhere else to nest. Um if you're looking to hibernate you need something again. So you know getting in amongst the leaf litter in the woods or the scrub. So the mix of habitats really does, you know, lead to abundant uh, wildlife and that's what I love about the site and I think in an ideal world we we would love it if we get to a point where we get the grazing just right with with rareberry cattle and and some sheep where we just let them do the management we can Mm. step back we don't have to bring in heavy machinery to remove um, scrub we we'd love to get away from using herbicide which we don't really use very much anymore Um, but some of the some of the plants are really tough to control like bramble people probably assume it's a kind of natural landscape that just perhaps don't
2: appreciate the management that it takes to
3: yeah it's it's definitely a challenge but in some ways if people don't realize it's being managed you you know you you can you can kind of take that as a sort of backhanded compliment in a way because you know it it feels more natural and and part of that is using things like electric fencing using the right livestock and the right numbers um but yeah we 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 find a lot of our visitors really—they um, really understand the yew woodland, and they get very excited about coming here to see the yew woodland. But the grassland, the chalk grassland, they might not realise how rare and special it is. Yeah. And I yeah. think until you stop—I mean, if you stop and have a picnic and you sit down for half an hour, you, you know, you can't help but be sort of lured in by it because the mm. scents, the buzzing and humming of hoverflies and, and all kinds of stuff, not to mention all the colours. Um, then I think people start to really, you know, see the value in it. So, yeah, we do, we have a few issues like most sites, um, people having barbecues, um, not realising that if you have a barbecue on a lovely bit of chalk grassland, you're probably going to kill that bit of yeah. grassland, if yeah. not forever, for an awful long time. Mm. And similarly under the yew trees. And it's it's hard because it, it feels so sort of ancient in a way to sit under a yew tree and, and camp or... Cook something up, but you know maybe that was what happened years ago. But now the the trees, the the roots are so shallow in the soil yeah. that it does a huge amount of damage. Um, and we we do get a few people who who sadly do have barbecues here, so it's something we're trying to clamp down on. Mm. Um, mm. Um, but yeah, I I think in many ways, if we get the engagement right on the site, that will that will address a lot of the antisocial behaviour. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's so many people who come to Kingie Vale as their local. Walk or a place they just feel so, you know, that they've got a real special tie with. So, in, in many ways, they sort of are the eyes and the ears. And, you know, I, I like to think a lot of people kind of help manage it just by being out yeah. and about yeah. and saying, you know, do you want to stick your dog on a lead or do you realize you shouldn't be cycling on this amazing old bronze burial <laughs> mound? <laughs> yeah. Um, or maybe it's not a great spot for a rave. We had an interesting <laughs> rave on the weekend just gone. Oh, you know, yeah. Someone put a right huge sound system in and They were very nice people. On top of the... uh, uh, Down in the bottom, um, down in the bottom, until they got stuck and couldn't get the the vehicle out. So, yeah, you do get a few issues, but... Mm. We've just stepped off the the chalk grassland area we're on, and we've come over to a new dew pond. And one of the features, obviously, about chalk landscapes, especially on the higher downs, very free-draining, a complete lack of water. So, in the past, people would have constructed these dew ponds, mostly for grazing... um, for grazing animals on for for watering the sheep and it's uh, quite a simple construction it's like a, a dish a, sh- a sort of saucer shape round and oh Ooh. just can you see yeah. what have we got there is that sparrowhawk? hook looking a bit high oh, straight off into the sun sorry we've been mom- I moment. Is, to-
2: i think it is a sparrowhawk. yeah we heard it didn't we yeah first?
3: yeah something just sh- sh- shot out um, yeah. Anyhow, I'm getting distracted, but yeah, we were looking at the, the dew pond and they, they would have basically constructed a shallow layer of puddle clay and the idea was that insulated the pond from the ground so it would be cooler and you'd get dew condensing on the pond and it would naturally oh, fill that's up. that's why it's called a dew pond, I never and, knew that. Yeah, 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 and I think there's a few question marks how effective that is, but <laughs> at the end of the day it catches a lot of rain. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've talked about all the great habitats we've got, but if you haven't got water you're missing something really key. So something we've really worked on is to try and dot in a few Mm g-ponds around and about the site. And you can see this one was put on with a a grant from Tesco's from the plastic bag scheme. (laughs) So thank you to anyone who (laughs) put the coin in our project in the local Chichester Tesco's. Um, But you can see this has been, I think, three and a half years already. There is so much going on in there. It's very established. Yeah, we've we've got starwood over there. We've got water plantains, we've got lilies, all kinds of pond weeds in there. And, you know, we were dipping here recently, smooth newt, palmate newt. Really? Uh, Loads of toad spawn. And, you know, we've seen a few dragonflies just while we're here, chasers darting around, smaller ones, usually get a few hawkers. So it's, um, yeah, it's a really nice feature to have on the reserve. And and anyone who comes to visit Kingley, you know, I would advise you to search out one of the dupons. Great to just sit and watch for a little while and see what appears. And, you know, even some of the bird species that are less common, things like turtle dove. Um, you'll get coming in and using these ponds, so really good spot for just a bit of quiet. What's amazing is if you create a pond, what arrives, isn't it? Like,
2: you know, newts, how do they get there? It's just yeah, incredible,
3: isn't it? Yeah, it? it is, it is, and, you know, and that's the other thing. I mean, newts, they live most of the, the year out of the mm. the water, but, you know, they've marched over from another pond somewhere, so often it's really about having that, those sort of stepping stones of other ponds and water features mm. that they can move through mm. the landscape. Mm.
2: So we're now on the uh, western side of the reserve and there's a <coughs> we're under some yew trees that are probably 70 years old do you think? Something yeah, like that Steve
3: probably around and about we've, we've got some of the, we've got some really old trees in the bottom but a lot of the, the yew trees are a lot younger and they would have been on downland which is they've basically colonized the downland since um, pretty much since the second world war but as we can see they're fantastic for the uh, for the for the livestock when, on a really hot day um, we're just looking at some of our Herdwick sheep, which we use to graze the site. So these are sheep you're probably more familiar from the Lake District. Um, and normally we wouldn't graze in the summer. Um, it, it's you know you, you, The whole point of grazing is to promote floral interest and get more wildflowers, and the sheep will tend to eat a lot of the wildflowers. But in areas where the grassland's poor quality or you know it's, it's become really scrubby, really brambly it's quite good every now and then to give it a summer graze. So the Herdwicks love bramble. I, I'm not quite sure who, wow. who figured that, but they just <laughs> seem to love bramble. So they're in heaven here. And, you know, if Stuff. you get them on at the right time and you get that new flush of bramble, they really get on it. Um, so they've been a really good, good management tool on the reserve. You know, our, our preference is always to graze with cattle, um, which generally are much less selective. So you get mm. real sort of rougher grazing with tussocks and then shorter areas and they'll trample in amongst the scrub and you know they'll poach the ground so you get different things seeding in there whereas the sheep are a bit more of your sort of you know bowling green lawn yeah so yeah. good for a certain use but the herdwicks particularly because of the bramble um that work really well here and i think the public quite likes seeing you know the feedback we get from a livestock is is actually quite positive again i think because we use things like um the electric fencing so you know you're not coming in and seeing lots of um fenced areas and no. we try and hide the troughs away um and generally whenever we graze an area we tend to give them quite a big a big space yeah you know with a load of trees so they've got some somewhere to sort of hide from the yeah they're all uh, the sun in the public most of them are lying down aren't they from the they sun are at the if moment. these guys are very skittish if we go over and i can tell you because when we move them they uh they very rarely go where we want them to um <laughs> but yeah they've They've chosen the right spot. And again, you know, you might have mentioned on the way in, Hugh, that the difference when you step out of the grassland in the baking heat and you go into the cool, cool mm, yew mm. forest, I mean, it's lovely.
2: Oh, it is beautiful today, isn't it?
3: But it's yeah, really so, so grazing is really one of the main, main bits of management we do on the reserve. Um, and, you know, in an ideal world, we'd, we'd probably graze a little bit more. Earlier, I was mentioning the rag work, but you,
2: and we were talking about the instinct to sort of pull it up. But in fact, you were saying it's actually quite good in many ways. Yeah,
3: def- I mean we we're, we're lucky we don't have lots of horse paddocks around the reserve um, where you know it, it could cause a cause um, some upset. But it, on the reserve, it, it's fantastic for so many invertebrates, um, and it's you know it's quite a nice yellow flower. It is, isn't there it? is yeah. there is an instinct even amongst um, site managers, you know, saying pull it, pull it, you know, because <laughs> you've just been taught in the past. Mm. It's a bit similar with scrub, actually. People used to be very focused on scrub clearance and scrub bashing. Yeah, I remember
2: scrub bashing from when I worked in conservation. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and you know, I think we probably went too far that way, and now people really get the the value of scrub, especially the right kind of scrub, really dense thorny scrub. Yeah. You know, when you when you're out in the morning, that's where you see all the life, especially the birds. Are now
2: in the bottom of the valley, amongst the really old yews for which uh, Kingley Vale is so famous. And the yew I'm looking at at the moment is probably, well it's hard to tell whether it's one tree or two, but it's uh, certainly probably about eight or nine metres around. And it has lots of low branches that come off and hang down and then seem to root themselves into the soil. And the amazing thing about yew trees is in some ways they're almost eternal because the The branches come down, root themselves into soil, and then new shoots emerge from those branches and create new trees. And in fact there's one we'll go and see in a minute called the Grandfather, which has lots of children and grandchildren coming off it. Aging yew trees is very hard because they hollow out from the inside and therefore there aren't any rings you can count. So it's extremely difficult to know how old these yew trees are. As I say, they're absolutely massive. They look like sort of rearing beasts with these twisted big arms of branches coming off. And underneath, nothing grows. We've just got the brown uh, needles of the yew tree because they cut out the light, but also the soil around them is impossible for anything to grow in. And then there's great shattered bits which have fallen off as well. You can see sort of arms with huge cracks in them, bits lying on the ground. So as new bits are growing, old bits are dying. Uh, There's some interesting legends about these yew trees in Kingly Vale. One legend is that they were planted to commemorate a battle when the men of Chichester, as they were termed, lured a group of Vikings up into the vale and slaughtered them. And this accounts for the red in the uh, yew wood when it rains, which is an interesting story. And I'm going to read a poem by a friend of mine, Vicky Fever, who used to live near here, who wrote about these yews themselves. And it's just called Yews. Fed on the blood of Vikings, stained a deep umber red, trees driven by the passions of xylem and phloem to break out of the fastness of wood, branches twisting into nets, heads, tusks, poisoners, their venom in feathery needles, in seeds buried in the pulp of the female's orange berries. I stand in their smothering tents, the space where nothing grows, adjusting to the thin light, the resinous stillness, the sleepiness of thinking, this would be the moment to lie down and die. And there is something strangely soporific or deathly about standing under these trees in a way. It feels like time is almost standing still here. So what we're going to do is just walk along have a look at some more of this grove of the ancient ewes and talking to Steve earlier he was saying there are about 70 very old ewes in the bottom of the valley here and Attempts have been made to age them. Recent things I've read suggested anywhere between 500 and a thousand years old. So we really don't know how old these trees are. Especially as I say that some may have just reproduced by laying down branches, new trees grow. We think it's a different tree, but in fact it might just be the same tree that's going on and on and on. So now I'm walking further into the grove, another Twisted yew. It almost looks dead when you look at the main body of it. There's these broken off branches with no leaves on them or needles on them. But then the further up we look, we can see lots of needles. The collapsed, what seemed like collapsed arms, coming down, burying themselves in the soil again. But dead bits of yew lying around everywhere. And I'm just coming to a spot now where two yews have been blown over. So I'm looking at the roots of them. But these yews are still surviving, they're still growing. Apparently if a tree is blown over, as long as a third of the roots remain in the ground, it can keep growing. I've also heard that this area is an area for wicker. And I have seen tokens left on the trees, which a student of mine informed me were wicker tokens. And now a huge beast of a tree right in front of me, tusks coming out, a big branch that looks like a crocodile, crocodile's eye and mouth there as if it's looming out of the wood at me. Other bits look like big serpents and we can see here where some of the wood is wet, it rained very heavily last night and we can see the red colour, perhaps that's the blood of the Vikings we can see there coming out of the wood. Some other dead yews lying about here with the most amazing gnarled shapes. Some of these, where the wood's very smooth, it actually looks a bit like coral, amazingly. And now we're going to move up to look at the largest tree, what's sometimes called the grandfather tree, which I mentioned before. Which, when, as we approach it, looks like a cage work of shattered, dead Branches. And then we actually come in under the tree, and all these branches, which are leafless, are reaching down, burying themselves in the soil. And we walk about 10 feet further on, and new trees are just shooting up from those branches. And I'm basically standing in a grove of yews with probably about 10 or 15 trees around me which all sprouted from this, this old tree, the grandfather tree. Most of the wood on the grandfather tree looks dead, but it's obviously not because these trees are still growing. An amazing sight, this huge yew, which has been here for, well, who knows how long. And there are flints trapped in some of its... where well, you can see the roots as well. So now I'm just emerging out of the grove of very old yews to look north into the bowl of the valley, to look up onto the hill. And it's suddenly very bright and much warmer out here. There's a sort of nice, rich, moist, cool air under the yews. You can probably hear a plane going over there. There must be 15 or 20 dragonflies just to my right huge number of them there. <clears throat> on the hill on the east side of Kingley Vale I can see a row of younger ewes covering the hillside. These are about 70 years old and underneath there if you go in there it's 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 just nothing growing underneath it's sort of the ewes are so close to the ground Then up ahead I can see the top of the valley there's other trees growing up there and if you can hear the birds Skylarks, particularly, I can hear at the moment, but some other birds as well. I've just also walked past what is apparently an old field system, medieval field system. And one of the fascinating things about Kingly Vale is its human history. I've already mentioned the Vikings. Right ahead of me, what looks like a sparrowhawk has just landed on a bush and is looking intently at me. The bowl of the valley which I'm now in, the sort of wide expanse, open expanse, was used in the Second World War as a training gown for Canadian troops. Up ahead of me, there are some shattered trees that were used for target practice by the troops. The story goes that they also used to use the local farm workers as target practice, scaring them by shooting at them. I don't know how true that is. Certainly at the end of the Second World War, there was an old tank left in the valley that was used for target practice. And Richard Williamson, in his book... The Great Yew Forest tells the story of how the army came to blow it up and they tried once and not much happened. It's a kestrel, not a sparrowhawk, and it's hovering about 20 feet from me. It's just taken off again across the valley. So they tried to blow the tank up. There was a massive explosion. The tank lifted a few feet in the air and nothing happened. The locals had all come to watch and thought this was hilarious. The next week, the army came back again. The locals all gathered. This time there was a mighty explosion and bits of tank rained down on everyone. Whether there were any injuries, I don't know. So hopefully I'm getting closer to my goal of finding the resistance bunker that I mentioned earlier. So just to fill you in on that a bit, in 1940, when invasion looked imminent, the British government decided to form resistance units, particularly in the south of England. And men were recruited either from the Home Guard or who were too young to go to the army. And they were sworn to secrecy. They weren't even allowed to tell their families what they were doing. And they were trained in explosives, assassination, those sorts of things. And in the event of an invasion, they would go underground and they would come out and harass the Germans... They were given 21 days life expectancy. They were given supplies 21 days because no-one thought they would live longer than that. The group who were from Chichester or le- nearby used to come up here for training and tell their family they were playing football, so it was known as the football field. Apparently there was a cache of arms found in the bottom of the valley, but I've no idea where that is or whether it's still there. But rumours of this hideout for the resistance have persisted, people have told me about it and I know it's somewhere up on the top here in the yew trees off to the west so I'm going to be heading up that way, and walking up the hill now and stopping at some other interesting Iron Age and Bronze Age sites on the way. So I'm up on the top now and there's a beautiful grassland here with clover just below me. It's a line of ewes, probably about 200 year old ewes, and in front of me two mounds and these are burial mounds. They've, already, they've been excavated so they're kind of hollow in the middle, but they were the burial mounds of Beaker people, tribes who moved in to this country in prehistoric times. <coughs> and these uh, burial mounds, apparently when they were made, would have been bright white because they would be made of chalk, presumably seen for miles, and therefore it's assumed would have been the burial mounds of high status people to be buried up here. There's also the remains of a hill fort further off in the woods, and beyond that if we go along the ridge eastwards, elements of a Roman temple, so amazing amount of human activity in this area for thousands of years. I'm just walking down the other side of the barrow now and I could see a buzzard ahead of me just gliding gracefully over the yew trees, very distinctive wing shape. As it lifts up takes a few casual flaps. It's been carried on the gentle wind that's coming from the south, using that wind to make its way down the hill so i'm following it down the hill now and i'm going to be entering area of the 200 year old yew trees so these yew trees have spread up here over a couple of hundred years as i said again with the yews it's a bit like entering a kind of dark temple of some kind as we walk through the gate. The ewes here of course much smaller than the ones in the valley, perhaps 20-30 feet high, girth of about two meters I should think. But if I actually go into the wood now you may notice the change in the sound. It's very quiet in here Again, the ground is completely bare except for the needles and branches of the yew trees. There's a kind of almost deathly stillness in here. I'm just going to stop and listen to see what I can hear buzzing of a bee. A few birds in the distance. But not much else. And this is the area that I'm told. Second World War bunker is in. Now apparently what they did with these bunkers was dig down into the earth and create a sort of uh, secret room lined with corrugated iron and they would have an entrance, a vertical entrance and then an emergency escape exit as well in case they were discovered. And the idea was that they would live down there, come out at night to harass the enemy. This is quite a lonely spot on this side of the reserve, going down a narrow footpath through the yew trees, and I haven't seen anyone for quite a while. The bottom of the reserve tends to be more busy. Um, So I'm going to... Back off into the trees and see what I can find. I kept thinking I'd found the bunker when I saw piles of chalk, but more often than not, well, in just about all cases, it was a, a badger set. But now I actually have found it. So it's on a bank about 100 yards from the path in amongst smaller yew trees and it's basically a hole in the ground which I'm just going to jump down into filled with chalk probably two or three feet deep but at one end of it are three bits of corrugated iron the fourth is missing that would have formed square there's nothing below it because it's all filled with chalk and rubble but this I believe is the entrance to the bunker but it's fascinating to think that men, young men in the Second World War would have come up here and prepared to live underground under these yew trees, sneak out at night, presumably make their way down to the south coast to try and cause havoc amongst the German occupiers. So say, they were trained in assassinations and... Um, Blowing things up basically. Apparently after the war many of them kept quiet about it for a long time and it was a long time before they were actually recognized for their services. I think perhaps they felt a sworn secrecy they had to to keep it secret. So amazing I've actually found the remains of the bunker after a lot of looking. So it is nice and cool under these yew trees. There's a strong smell of Stinkhorn around here, that uh, amazing fungi that attracts flies with its smell. Uh, But I can't actually see it, I can definitely smell it. As I say, a lot of badger sets in these woods as well and you can really see the evidence of the diggings where they've chucked the chalk out onto the surface. Amazing to think how many of these bunkers maybe still lie hidden around the country. I've just come out on the western side of the reserve and in front of me I can just see the outline of the Isle of Wight in the haze and Portsmouth below it and some more inlets of the sea hailing island and there's a kestrel hovering just in the field ahead of me so now I'm going to Turn back, walking back through some more downland sward. Amazing profusion of plants, and flowers here. And I'm going to head back down towards the exit. I'm going to finish with a poem that was partly inspired by Kingley Vale. And the poem's called The Tranquility Maps. Now, Tranquility Maps are actual maps uh, produced by the Council for the protection of Rural England, originally in 1995 and then updated in 2007. And the idea of the maps is to show the quietest and noisiest places in the UK. I'm sure Kingley Vale must be one of the most tranquil. It's quite amazing how little human sound there is here. There's no traffic noise at all. The occasional aeroplane passes overhead, as we've heard but otherwise it's remarkably tranquil. So what I've tried to do in this poem is to give kind of physical sense of what a tranquility map might be. The tranquility maps. Their coordinates are silence and the voices of water. Their symbols concealed in the revelations of bark. They describe the contours of light seed head's vocabulary, mathematics of stillness and the geography of leaves, elaborate the progress of lichen, the winds and structured notations
1: And with that poem, The Tranquility Map, that's a lovely way to end Hugh's adventure in Kingly Vale. His two poems that he featured in his podcast are from a collection of his poems called Hair, published by Cinnamon Press. And he's got another collection of poems, also published by Cinnamon Press, called Kin. So, wonderful. Thank you, Hugh, for that brilliant exploration of Kingly Vale and its historical sites really curious place I'd love to visit. I've not really explored the South Down, so that's a really good introduction to some of the wonders, histories and mysteries to be found down there. We're also very grateful to Vicky Fever for allowing us to use her poem from The Book of Blood, published by Jonathan Cape. And Vicky apparently taught Hugh at Chichester, where Hugh is now Professor of Creative Writing and Contemporary Poetry. So again, thank you, Hugh, and we'll, we'd love to have you back on the podcast somewhere down the line. And talking of beautiful poetry, it's time to join the podcast team of Jack and Hannah for the latest podcast postbag. Hello, chaps. Lovely to see you.
0: Hello. Hello.
1: Hannah, you're looking well, finally. <laughs>
0: thank you. Thank welcome you. back to do you feel much better?
1: welcome back to full health. Great to see you, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Jack's <laughs> looking fine, fine, Jack's looking fine and dandy as ever. Um, so how have you been? How have you been? What have you been up to? It's jolly hot today. We're recording in the virtual podcast studio. Have you been out and able to enjoy this weird autumn heat?
0: Yes, it's Blackberry time. Blackberries are happening. It is Blackberry season. It's finally happened. I feel like it's slightly later than it was last year, and I'm currently raiding every hedgerow I can find
1: and what do you just eat them or what do you what do you do with them do you take them home and cook them up into some delicious things
0: there are a lot of crumbles my dad is a big fan of making the crumble, so we'll have crumbles from now until well we freeze them as well so it'll keep going and sometimes we keep a bag in the freezer for february when we're all feeling a bit sad and then we'll cook that and have that taste of lovely autumn in the depths of winter
1: yeah i, I mean i there's such a harvest out there. I can't believe people would ever buy blackberries in the shops when there's just hundreds of tonnes of them to be to be devoured. Are you, are you a blackberry fan, Jack? I, I enjoy picking a good blackberry or two. Uh, if I'm out on a walk and I see a,
3: a little branch with a nice juicy one on the end, I'll, I'll go and pick him.
0: They're just, they're just wonderful. You can feed yourself while walking. Now's
1: the time to live off the wild. If, if you were ever going to go on the run, now's the time. <laughs> was the time to go and you can forage happily on blackberries. Going back to poetry, obviously Hugh, being a poet, he festooned his podcast with lovely poetry. Do you, do, you like, do you have any sort of country poems that you have ever taken your fancy?
0: Unsurprisingly, Dylan Thomas. Anything, everything, all things Dylan Thomas. He just writes perfectly. Especially because he writes about places that I know well. And he fills them with people, like his countryside poems are populated by people and people's voices and people's feelings and people's actions. It's And I was um, particularly thinking about uh, Under Milkwood, Wood, which technically is not a poem but a play, but there is a poem within it. So one of the characters, the Reverend Eli Jenkins, thinks about himself as a bard and he sort of Sings in the morning and sings in the evening. So his morning poem is about the village that they live in and how, although it's not very special in if when you compare it to more dramatic features of Wales, it's theirs. And it's wonderful and special because it's theirs and it's home.
1: Could you give us a line from it?
0: Um, so I'm not going to read the whole thing because there is a lot of Welsh in this that I can't pronounce yet, Um, but I would say that there is a reading by Richard Burton on YouTube, and he does it beautifully, and it's a treat because people who know Under Milkwood, like the famous um, recording was done with Richard Burton as the first voice, and he doesn't read this poem because it's read by the actor playing the character, the Reverend Eli Jenkins, so this this recording is an extra little tasty treat. Dear Gualia, I know there are towns lovelier than ours, and fairer hills and loftier far, and groves more full of flowers, and boskier woods more blithe with spring, and bright with birds adorning, and sweeter bards than I to sing their praise this beauteous morning.
1: Oh that's lovely. Perfect, thank you. Let's do the postbag. Uh, What have we got for you today? Hannah, I believe you've got an email.
0: I have an email from Sean Crawford, who lives in the Brecon Beacons, and he writes, I listened to the Munnith Klangatuk podcast on Sunday, and it moved me lots. As I listened, I thought back to my own walk up to the witch's pool with my friend Hugh a few years ago. We had followed Cairns and made our own various attempts to reach the actual water's edge, we managed that, but not with any ease or without damp feet. Oddly enough, or rather with immaculately serendipitous timing, having not spoken to Hugh for ages, he rang me yesterday to say that he'd walk there again on Sunday. I explained that I'd listened to your podcast, about which he was unaware, literally as he was walking up there himself. Hugh has been researching the battle theory further. This may not necessarily be news to you, but Hugh tells me that 1913 OS sheet Turpenkön is labelled site of battle. I know that little rise is a little way distant from the poch itself, but one does wonder if this is another link to the story of the battle. So thanks again for reminding me of its very atmospheric presence.
1: Oh, thank you, Sean. That's really lovely to hear uh, that you also enjoy walking up on the Attic. And yeah, how, how, and it has such resonance for you. And it sounds like you had a similar experience to when I was up there, which is, it's quite daunting and hard to find the pool. And then when you get there, it's it's, it's a sort of mirage. It's a shimmerer. If you and Hugh find out anything more about this strange site and the battle up there, please let us know and perhaps we'll revisit, but we'll certainly include your story later in a later podcast. Jack, what have you got I've gone for a swim down in in the bag and I've pulled out a double whammy. First of all, I have
3: an email uh, and it's from Rob Hunt. And he has said, I just wanted to congratulate you on your podcast success. It really is going from strength to strength. And I keep recommending it to people who are struggling with any stresses. You've got a new celebrity fan and comedian Lucy Porter too, who I recommended it to at an event I was at. And she said
1: she listened and loved it, which is brilliant. Oh, fantastic. Welcome aboard, Lucy. Tell all your friends, tell all your audiences. <laughs> um, and, well, the invite's there. Please do come and join us for a podcast ramble sometime. Thank you, Rob. That's really encouraging and really kind of you to say. And also for spreading the word to all your celebrity friends. You said a double whammy, Jack. Yes. I am also found a sound of the week this week. And it comes from, I believe it's. F- f- Fergus Collins? <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. Editor's prerogative. I've stepped in again here. Um, <laughs> only because it's a good. Only because it's a good sound. Well, you know, it. It's nice to share. It wouldn't make a whole podcast or even a sound escape. But on holiday, I was staying back in early or oh, late July. I was staying up in the Bowen Hills and quite an old barn conversion. And every day, I heard this strange noise, like small creatures running around and talking to each other in hidden away somewhere in the house and then in the evening bats would fly into the house the whole time and I really enjoyed that But not everybody everybody likes bats flying around and eventually traced the noise down to a colony of bats squeaking during the day just chattering to themselves so here's bats talking bat chat
0: It's amazing. It sounds like someone um, like rewinding a cassette tape really quickly.
1: Oh yeah, like that squeaky sort of squeaky fast voices. Yeah, it, it was it, it was a bit disturbing all day long to hear this little. I think there were little. I mean, the, the bats that came in the house were the tiniest things, and they would settle on clothing and beams and things like that. So I loved it. Some of the family didn't like it, but yeah, uh, <laughs> they are, they, are, they are, I think they're really cute, but tiny. So one of the pipistrel Species, I think. But that's Pippistrel chat for you. So that's my sound of the week, um, Bats in the Belfry. Uh, but obviously, Jack and Hannah much prefer to listen to your sounds of the week than mine. We're just looking for any beautiful sounds of the countryside. don't necessarily have to be that beautiful, they can just be curious and entertaining and thought provoking. It's a very simple process. Record on whatever device you have to hand. A phone is perfectly acceptable. And then email your recording, no more than 20, 30 seconds. To me, Fergus Collins, and my email address is editor at countryfile.com. And if the file is particularly big, then you may need to have one of those file compression websites like Weave Transfer or Dropbox or something like that. But use that email address, editor at countryfile.com, and I will get it. And I really look forward to listening to them and sharing them with uh, my beloved colleagues here because it just gives us a little flavor of what, what you're all doing out in the countryside and what you're enjoying wherever you are in the world. But we're also back next week with Kenneth, another poet. Um, We're going through a little poetry phase at the moment. Kenneth Stephen, regular contributor to the podcast over the last couple of years. And he has gone to the remote and sacred Isle of Iona in the Inner Hebrides, which is a resting place of kings, a birthplace of Christianity in the British Isles. It's a lovely, lovely, lovely recording. Absolutely don't miss it. And we'll be chatting about that next week. But that's it for now from us all. Thank you so much for listening and farewell. Goodbye.